Good morning, Christ Chapel. How are you? Good. Glad you're here. Glad we're getting to study God's Word together. If you grab your Bibles, uh, if you don't have one, they're under your seat. If you don't own one, we'd love to buy you one. Specifically, Cody and Jen would love to buy you one. I'll buy you like a New Testament, um, but Cody and Jen, they'll buy you the whole thing. Um, Also grab your sermon notes too. If those are helpful, we always create those just to be helpful if that helps you retain kind of where we're going as we're unpacking scripture. If you're like me, uh, I take the sermon notes and um, I look at the back before we start. The answers are on the back, guys. And I fill in the blanks before we even start. Some might call that cheating. I call it planning ahead. Um, If that's you, then today we're going to throw you a curveball because my answers on the back don't match all of the the blanks on the front. So if you try to do that, you're going to be super confused when you get to like blank three. So it's just trying to keep you guys on your toe. It's July and it's hot. We got to keep things fresh around here. We're going to be in Acts chapter 11. That's page 919-919 in your Bibles. We're going to be in Acts chapter 11. We're going to be studying verse 1 through verse 26 in chapter 11. And before we start with verse 1, before we start there, I actually want to take us to the very end of verse 26 so that as we work our way through the passage this morning, we can, we can really begin with the end in mind. At the end of verse 26, it says, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. What we're going to study today in chapter 11 of Acts is the arrival of the term Christian. It's the first time in history in in these Antioch believers and what's happening here and where we're getting in the next 26 verses where we're going to land on this was where the the name tag of Christianity began. What defines a Christian is going to be built throughout the next 26 verses really has, has been being built since Genesis 1 throughout, but really uh, zooming in today on, on really the key characteristics of Christianity we see here. Here's what, um, here's what I've been praying for you uh, this last week. If you are a Christian, if you wear that name tag and, and your faith is in Christ and you identify as a Christian because of where you've placed your faith, um, my prayer is that God's spirit will use his word today to refresh and to challenge, and to renew, that you would be able to dig deeply, that God's Spirit will do something for us who, have, who call ourselves Christians, who are in Christ. We will deepen what that looks like, the definition of who we are called to be. And if you are not a Christian this morning, a couple of prayers I've been praying all week for you. Uh, one is that you would feel so welcome in this place. I mean it. I mean, our hope, even if you don't believe what we believe, even if you don't believe this, that you feel welcome in this place, and also that God stirs in your heart, that you would see behind the curtain of what a Christian biblically is designed to be and who it is and and really what this whole Christian thing is at the core uh, and that God would stir you to action. That's my prayer for you, that God would stir you to action in a way that gives you a greater glimpse of him as revealed in scripture uh, that changes your eternity. That's my prayer for you. Changes your eternity much less your Sunday afternoon. Let, Let me set up chapter 11 with a quick recap of Acts chapter 10. Peter's in a town of, of, called Joppa, right? He's in this town of Joppa in, in Acts chapter 10. He gets a vision, a, a sheet is being lowered. The, there's animals of all different kinds on that sheet. And he hears God audibly say, kill and eat. Peter, because he's a good Jew who, who knows that that's out of bounds, says, I would never 
God says, don't argue with me. He says, okay. Three guys show up to his house and they say, we're here to take you to Cornelius. Cornelius lives in a town up north out of Judea in Samaria, which is kind of frowned upon. And Cornelius is a Gentile. These are Gentiles. Right? Jews weren't supposed to really be intermixing with them. They certainly weren't supposed to be fellowshipping and eating. We're, we're supposed to take you to Cornelius. So he goes. Because of this vision, because of the prompting, he obeys God's command. He goes. He shows up in Cornelius' house. And Cornelius is this God-fearing Gentile. He's not a Jew. He, he, he hasn't been studying the God of, of Yahweh. But, but all of a sudden, he is becoming a man who is God-fearing and, and pursuing and desiring a relationship with God. And, and he says, I got a vision, Peter. I got a vision that I was supposed to come and get you and you were supposed to come to my house and you're supposed to tell me what you're supposed to tell me. What's this message? Peter shares the gospel. They believe, they say, yes, that's what we believe. We believe in Jesus. We believe he is the hope too. We believe that he is the answer. And, and then the Holy Spirit falls on them miraculously. They're speaking in tongues, wild stuff. Peter's looking around to the friends he brought and he's thinking, we got to baptize these guys now. That is what happened in Acts chapter 10 that leads us right up to Acts chapter 11. We're going to look at the first three verses. Verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were, who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Let's unpack. Let's unpack what's happening here in these first three verses. There's a seismic event that gets everybody's attention, right? This whole, this fellowship that Peter had with these people who were unclean uh, up to that point, these unclean Gentiles, is not what a God-fearing, faithful Jew would have done. That wasn't, that wasn't the custom if you were a God-fearing, faithful Jew. You wouldn't have gone and inter, intermixed and, and gone and eaten with these uh, Gentiles. So Peter returns up to Jerusalem to find the religious leaders upset. We got a, a map. It's the same map we showed yesterday, but just geographically, you see, he was in Joppa. He goes up into Caesarea, which is kind of this half-breed land of Jews who kind of intermixed. It was very frowned upon. And so he's in Caesarea, but all of Judea has gotten word. That's how seismic of an event historically is happening throughout the church, the early church. And so these believers in Jerusalem, these Jewish followers of Jesus, are saying, what is going on? And so he goes back to Jerusalem and faces his critics, right? So he goes back and he faces what's called the circumcision party, which, if I'm honest, sounds like a lame party. Just leave that there for you guys. <laughs> West Camp has definitely got that joke. Um, in actuality, right, the circumcision party is actually just, a, it's a group, it's a reference to those who have kept the law, right? I mean, they have kept the law, they're following all the Old Testament traditions and all the customs and all the rituals, and they're, they're proud of that, and hopefully it's out of reverence for a holy God who calls them to be set apart. But these men, right, in this, in this party, they know the right ritual. They know the right rule, they know the right thing to do, they have the right behaviors, and because of that, they're pretty upset with Peter, right? And they're pretty skeptical. Here in verse 2 and 3, they are skeptical. The skeptical criticize Peter's theology. That's what we see, right? We see in verse 2 or 3 that they are skeptical. And what are you doing going where it is unclean? And they're, they're criticizing him. They're criticizing specifically this theology that Peter is now really propagating as he's praying over these Gentiles and seeing the Holy Spirit and affirming them and baptizing them. And theology is, is the study of who God is and how he relates to creation. That's what theology is, 
right? Peter had this new theological revelation. God is not going to omit the Gentiles from his plan of salvation. This is a huge, monumental, theological revelation that Peter is receiving. What was thought as unclean to God. Now God is saying, now God is saying the power of Jesus' blood, the sacrifice of Christ, is powerful enough to make what was unclean clean now. And so he is now functioning in, in a new way. That theological revelation has turned into orthopraxy for, for Peter, right? This new orthodox belief that's turning into practice in his, in his life as he goes and obeys and does what the Spirit of God leads him to do and starts to uh, allow baptisms of these Gentiles. He's putting that theology in practice, and now they've received the Spirit of God. But this new movement, right, it challenged what was familiar for those early believers. It, it, it ruffled their feathers, but this is a history-shaping plot twist. If you heard the sermon from last week when Matt preached uh, Acts chapter 10, where he talked a lot about plot twists, which is so well articulated to exactly what this is. It's a, a huge plot twist. If you didn't hear that sermon, go back and listen to that sermon, and you'll get such a richer understanding of really the rest of Acts from here on out and how to apply it. Look, it, it was wildly exciting to be a Jewish believer at the time. I mean, think about it. The Old Testament, I mean, they are waiting. If, you're, if you were a Jew, a practicing Jew, and you were waiting, you were a part of God's people, and God had been telling a story, and now there had been this dormant period of time, and, and you're conquered by Rome, and you're waiting, and you believe a Messiah is going to come one day, and then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up, and those who see it, those who have eyes to see, right, the apostles and the believers here that we're talking about in Acts, they get it. They see Jesus is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. All these things have been pointing to this Messiah that we've been waiting for. We get it. We see it. He's here. Their, their minds are blown. It's an exciting time. He goes, he does what he says he's going to do. He ascends. They know he's coming back. So it's this really exciting time. But also, there's a ton of fear and confusion too. Right? It's so different from how they functioned before. Wait, Gentiles, that was never a part of our story. That was never how we functioned with God. It's out of their comfort zone. Throughout the New Testament, we see whole groups of people who miss it, who miss the gospel, who miss what God's doing because, because it wasn't what they expected, because it didn't fit the, the narrative and the story that they thought was, was going to be played out. This is a transitional time in history where we're seeing the emergence of a people that are given the name tag Christian. Christians, we'll see by the end of this section, are these Gentiles and Jews who see their need and their only hope for salvation in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And the first Christians we see are not defined by their customs. Right? We see that character trait, that they are not these first Christian name-tagged people. It's not their customs that define them. It's not their rituals. It's not their religious behavior that makes them Christians. But that would have been so hard, right? That's why they're skeptical, because they, they don't match. They don't match what our rituals are. They don't look like us. They don't act like us. We got questions. They're critical. They want some answers from Peter. So Peter is going to share with them the play-by-play. -play. Right? He's going to retell the story of Acts 10, almost verbatim. And we're going to read it here, Acts chapter 11, verses 4 through 18. And we're, I'm just going to read the whole, the whole retelling of Peter to these skeptics, starting in verse 4. But Peter began and explained to them in order 
I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. These skeptics, that they don't look like us, the customs aren't, they're skeptical, they, they love the Lord, they're, they, are, they are following Jesus, but they're skeptical. They hear the story we studied in Acts 10, they believe, they give God credit. On hearing this testimony, their theology realigns now. With, with God, with what was always God's plan. They just didn't see it. How beautiful, how beautiful that Peter's obedience to God was validated by God's power, right? How beautiful that Peter's obedience, his willingness to obey, his willingness to go, his willingness to come and share, it's, it's validated throughout this story by the power of God. Peter's role, so Peter's role in this epic, historical life-changing historical event was just to say, okay, and then obey. That was his role. And then God did the rest. God said, I just need you to go where I'm calling you to go. And when you get there, I'm going to tell you what to say, and you're going to say it. And then I'm going to do all of the actual life-changing work. But he said yes. He said okay. Let me point out some observations to where and to how we see this happen couple things I think are, are really fascinating in, in this section. One, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice that Peter doesn't go alone when following God's command. Right? He brought others along to witness the, this movement of the gospel. Right? He's bringing other people. It says in, in verse 12 and 13, remember it says, And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And then verse 12, And the Spirit told me, to go with them, making no distinction. And then he says, these six brothers, implying that, that when he's in front of the council of his uh, apostles back in Jerusalem, he's got those six guys. He's like, hey, these six guys were with me. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house. When Peter leaves his comfort zone and goes to Cornelius with these men and witnesses this miracle, Peter takes six bros with him. 
right? He, he takes some, some buddies with him. You even see the pronouns change here, right? You, you see it, it says me, and then all of a sudden it says we, and then it says us, right? He, he doesn't go alone. He's taking other people with us, rarely in Scripture. Rarely in Scripture are there lone rangers throughout specifically the expansion of the church. Rarely do we see that. There's usually a movement of the gospel through communities or through groups of people or, or through a missionary who usually always has a, a partner in that missionary journey. I don't think we should skim over that detail without maybe making notice of maybe, maybe God's design. Maybe there's a best practice here in, in how God calls us to obedience and how God moves in the church. I mean, even in Luke chapter 10, we see Jesus send out the 72. And Luke chapter 10 is when, is when Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, we need more work, we need to spread the gospel. And he takes these 72 followers, these 72 disciples, and he sends them out, but he sends them out in pairs. And so instead of having 72 gospel conversations, right, instead of having 72 people all having their own gospel proclamation and planting seeds, what does Jesus do? He says it's actually better to have 36 because you're in pairs. And so we're going to pair you up. I think I did that math right. 36 times 72. Yes, 36, right? He is this, and so we just see this pattern throughout scripture. But please don't hear me say, please don't hear me say you can't or you shouldn't share the gospel or be obedient if you don't have a wingman, all right? If you feel and hear and see God stirring and giving you an opportunity it doesn't mean, ah, I, I can't do that. Please don't hear me say that. You're still called to obedience. Maybe, maybe all this is is just look for opportunities to bring others along. Look for opportunities to include community. Even if it's looking for opportunities to partner with people in prayer, in retrospect. Hey, I shared Christ with my Uber driver and I, we partner in praying with me. Rather than, ah, I don't have anybody with me. So this Uber driver is asking, how can I be saved? I can't tell you until Steve gets here. Acts 10, Peter's wisdom to bring others along, right? It helps validate. It helps validate the testimony of God because it means that when, that when God let his spirit fall on these new Gentile believers, it was witnessed by more than just Peter. It was witnessed by this community. But let's be honest, right? The most obvious confirmation of what happened in Acts chapter 10 is from, is from what God did with the Holy Spirit, how, how God used his Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, how it acts, the Holy Spirit validated the message of the gospel. That's really where our validation of the gospel for these new believers and this new theological movement comes from. Remember, verse 15 through 17, as I began to speak, Peter says, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gives to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in their way? This is an amazing moment, an amazing moment. The Holy Spirit falls on these new Gentile believers in the same way it did in Jewish believers back in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. It matches and that's what, what the Holy Spirit is doing. That's why he's doing it, to validate those who had ex experienced Pentecost. To those disciples who were there at Pentecost, they say, wait, God's doing the same thing with these, with these guys, with the Gentiles, as he did with us. He moved in that way to validate it for, for the church, to keep unity 
within the church. This wasn't a new sect. This wasn't a, a new gospel. This wasn't a new message, but it was the same message of Christ. Here in Acts 10 and 11, the gospel is now being opened up to the rest of the world. Here's something we can't ignore also is, is this is documented twice in the book of Acts, which is, which is crazy to think about. I mean, the same story, the story I just read, if you were here last week, I mean, that's the story of Acts 10. And then the author of Acts, Luke, he tells the story in Acts 10. Then he retells the exact same story. It would have been super easy and probably saved a lot of trouble if he would have just said, then Peter told them what happened. But he he doesn't do that. Luke tells the entire detailed story, this historical event that changed everything for the church. And then he says, and then Peter told them. And he says the whole thing again. This emphasis we have to see, we can't ignore back to back. It's an emphasis that puts this huge glaring spotlight on what the Holy Spirit did. It helps define what that name tag of Christian means. What defines it? The first Christians were defined by God's Spirit. That's what defined them. It was the Holy Spirit that said, yes, it's not through the customs that they believed, but by God saying through his spirit, these are mine. These are my kids. I'm going to, there's so many theological things to get into here, um, but, but I, I want to I jump us into Acts chapter 11, um, verse 19, because look at what's about to happen. Uh, we see this shift happen. We now see Peter retell the story of what happens. Now we're going to kind of back up with verse 19 and look what Luke does. Verse 19, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So verse 19 is is Luke backing up, right, kind of going non-linear and taking a step back and saying, hey, remember back when Stephen was, was martyred years earlier, when that happened, everyone spread out. A lot of believers spread out, but when they spread out, they didn't share the gospel with any non-Jews because that's what they thought they were supposed to do. They didn't think the gospel was for non-Jews yet. And so that's what he, so he's setting the scene. So he's taking a step back and saying, hey, remember that? But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Pay attention to these last two verses. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, He brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. What we see here is how Barnabas and Paul, or Saul, who who we also know of as Paul, as his name changes throughout, um, that Barnabas and Paul, they confirmed and encouraged this life-changing gospel. That's what we're seeing in, in these verses This life-changing gospel is now spreading. It's not just in Caesarea with Cornelius' guys. Now we've got this story of, wait, it's it's spreading in pockets. That that it seems like a way out of the hands of just the apostles' structure for the church. This is the Holy Spirit moving and saving people. There's another picture of the map that when Stephen died, the, the 
the believers, they spread to all these areas. And you see Antioch up there. People from Cyprus who were believers, who, who understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nobody's really sharing this with the Gentiles yet. They go over to Antioch and they're like, we're going to share it with the Hellenists, right? Who were, who were these, uh, they were Gentiles, right? They were Greek Gentiles. And so he's martyred and they're sharing it and, and people are getting saved. And so they send Barnabas to check it out. What's going on up there? What's happening in Antioch? Barnabas, you go up there and you confirm and you validate and you, you determine. I, I got to read verse 23 again. It said, when he came, Barnabas, when he came to Antioch, he goes to check it out and saw the grace of God. He was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. What did he see? He see their customs? Did he see their religious affiliation? Did he see their Christian t-shirts and their Christian bumper stickers? No, he saw, he saw the grace of God in these people. He saw the grace of God. More on that in a minute. Barnabas verifies the message of the gospel for these new believers. That's what he's doing. He's going up there and he says, let me see if this is real. Let me see if this is a weird cult. Let me, see, let me figure out what this is. And he sees the grace of God and he says, this is the work of our God. And what happens next is epic, right? If you were making a movie out of this scene, this is when like the music would start to swell and it would build, right? And there'd maybe be like a cool montage scene. And then this like big lead protagonist who kind of disappeared for a big chunk of the movie, all of a sudden enters back into the scene and the music climaxes and it's this huge thing. That's what's happening. Barnabas finds and recruits Paul to partner alongside him, right? He's like... Things are exploding. There's this great new problem. God's spirit has reached this whole new group of people. How are we going to disciple them? All these people are getting saved in Antioch. They're, they're Greeks, right? They're not, they're, they're Gentiles. They're not Jews. They don't have the historical background of a Jew, but they're falling in love with Jesus and their lives are getting changed. We got to disciple them. And then Barnabas is yet another example of a faithful man who knows he's not going to do it solo. And he remembers Saul. Saul, man, when, when Saul got saved, right, it was, it was amazing. I'm going to go get Saul. And so that's what he does, right? He, Tarsus isn't too far from Antioch, so he's up in Antioch. He goes to Tarsus, looks for him, finds him. He, he had to look for him, finds him, and then takes him back into the front lines of what God is doing, right? This, this man, Paul, who was so radically saved, and he was a teaching and a discipleship machine, right? And then they shipped him off to Tarsus, the disciples did, because people kept trying to kill him and people kept trying to silence him. And Barnabas says, we are bringing him back. We're getting him back off the bench into the game. Studying this was um, really fascinating for me. You know how long it was between when Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. Paul's converted and he goes blind and he gets his eye and, he, and he, his life changes. And Saul, Paul is converted. And, and the time from that to where he really, this is really the beginning of where he, the Paul that many of us know, this missionary who's discipling and teaching and traveling and go, building churches and moving and building another church and getting in prison, the time between that conversion to really this launch of his, of his missions career that I think of as Paul, 14 years, right? We know for three or four years, you know, he, he's off, and even three years before he even comes down to Jerusalem in the first place, we see from Galatians chapter two, he doesn't even come down to Jerusalem in the first place, and then they sneak him to Joppa. It, it's probably, he's probably in, in Tarsus for 10 years, 
10 years is what most all scholars say. So for the last 10 years, the last time we saw Paul was, we got to sneak you out of town because everybody's trying to kill you. So they sneak him out of Jerusalem, back to Tarsus. That's where he's home. Let's get him home. Let's get him safe. He can share and disciple and keep growing there. 10 years, a decade, where we don't hear anything from him. I often mistakenly kind of think it's this overnight transformation for Paul. I kind of just assumed, you know, the way Luke writes it. I mean, he, he's not stalling. It just seems like, well, yeah, just kind of flip the switch and he's off. Ten years of silence. It doesn't mean he wasn't walking with the Lord. It doesn't mean he wasn't being disobedient. But he, he's not on the front line of the story that God is telling through his scriptures at least. And that's what happens. Barnabas goes and he gets him back in the game. And Paul's back. And something I think hopefully that helps illustrate the significance, how significant it was getting Paul back in the game. There's 17 chapters left in the book of Acts. Right? We're in Acts chapter 11. There's 17 more chapters Of those 17 chapters, Paul is the leading character in 16 of the next 17. From here on out, a decade, we have no idea what was happening in Tarsus, what he was doing in Tarsus. He wasn't on the scene, and now he is off and running. Don't miss the characteristic that then he gathers Barnabas, they bring him down there, he goes to Antioch, they're making disciples, they're teaching for a year sitting with these new Antioch believers, this group of Jews and Gentiles gathering, worshiping, unified because of their belief in Christ. The first Christians were defined by their unity in this belief, right? They had this belief in Jesus and that was what was unifying them. Jew, Gentile, didn't matter, right? Years later when Paul is in prison, years later, he's in prison and he's writing to the church in Ephesus and he, he writes this um, this three verses in Ephesus chapter four. And, and when I hear that, I just think of, I wonder if Paul, when he wrote this in Ephesians chapter four, I wonder if he was thinking about this unity he had in the first year of walking with these brand new Christians, the first time the Christian name tag. In Ephesians four, Paul wrote from his jail cell, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He says, there's one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I have to think, man, that unity that the Spirit of God provides, that Paul built his missionary career by spending a year seeing it happen in a way that history had never seen up to this point. Definitionally, Christians should have unity with other Christians as we're all pursuing this one God through Christ Jesus. Okay, in our remaining five minutes, here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to take what we've learned about God and who he is and how he interacts, and I want to apply it to our lives. Three challenges. First is this. Investigate your theology in light of God's word. I want to challenge you. Don't just leave here with, with, with more information. Investigate your theology in light of God's word. If the challenge to investigate your theology sounds a bit daunting or intimidating, right? If you, if you think, man, digging deep into theology, that's, you know, pastor's jobs or that's biblical scholar's jobs, I would kindly push back. Everyone, everyone, you and everyone in our world is actually creating and reinforcing right now a personal theology. We might be doing it very subconsciously. In fact, in many ways we are very subconscious, but we're all building a theology. Who we believe God is and how he is interacting with us. Answering the question who God is is an exercise that happens in everyone's hearts and everyone's minds on a daily basis, whether we see it or not. 
The question is not, are you developing a personal theology? The question is, how are you developing a correct personal theology? And to, to determine that, to determine well, how, how do I determine a correct theology, you have to look at what authority am I using to shape my view of God and, and how God interacts with his people. What is the authority I'm looking for in order to determine my theology? Is it my feelings? Is that what's authoritative for me? Is it the culture? Is the culture my authority? Is my community? Is my comfort? I'm going to be real honest with you guys, and let's just private, just kind of family talk. Don't share this with anybody else except for the other campuses and everybody watching online. <clears throat> Here's my flesh. My flesh is I want to be my own king. My, f- my flesh says I want to determine what is permissible and what is impermissible in my life. Based on my circumstances and my comfort and my will, I want to, dict- I want to be my authority in who I say God is and how he wants to interact with me and how I interact through the world, right? And I'll acknowledge God as long as the, the theological concept of God is kind of a distant, abstract concept and doesn't hinder my day-to-day choices. But that tension of how we respond to this, it's shaping our theology whether we like it or not, right? I'm making the choice. Am I going to form God into my image that I can control? and I'm going to create a God that fits in the box that I feel comfortable with, or am I going to submit my life to his theology, who he says he is, who he calls me and how he calls me to live? The second is an exercise in trust. Right? I'm not God. I don't get to set the boundaries of my theology based on what's most comfortable or what's easiest for me. I get to be formed by the boundaries. You get to be formed by the boundaries of God and trust along the way. If you're a guest here, you should know this about our church. When it comes to the idea of authority, you should know this. Here at our church, we believe the only trustworthy, trustworthy authority is God's word. That's what we believe. Not, not me, not a, another pastor up here, not a Christian influencer. Right? The only trustworthy thing, if I say something, it's only trustworthy is, did it really come from Scripture? Are we really interpreting that correctly? Is that really what God's word says? And, and are we interpreting it based on what the author intended to say in the first place? We are unapologetic about that, even when the truth of Scripture is highly offensive in our culture, right? Or highly inconvenient. The way we want to live our lives, we don't get to shape God into a box, Truth is not relative. Truth is not relative to how I feel or how I want things to look or what I think would be most comfortable or convenient. God has a design. God has a design for men and women. God has a design for marriage. God has a design for our relationship with money. God has a design with how we treat people that we'd actually consider enemies. He has, a, he has a way that his will and his theology says, this is how you should do that. God has a value and a worth for unborn life in the womb. He even has a design for rest. He has a design for rest in the rhythms of our life. I don't get to just set those things based on what I feel most comfortable or with what our culture seems doable. We say, what is God's design? That's where we get our theology. We evaluate it in light of God's word. So here's the easy challenge for you. Here's the easy, just practical next step. Spend the rest of your life studying God's word. That's what it is. Spend the rest of your life every day studying, God, who are you and who do you say I am? 
And let me live in light of that. Let me believe in light of who you say, what you say is true and not true. And what I form to your image, live the rest of your life until you die. And then you stand before God and you say, yes, that is my God that I worshiped in truth and followed. Otherwise, you get to the end of your life and you say, who are you? And he says, who are you? And that's scary and that's sobering. Dig deep. Get in over your head. Don't go so There's men's Bible studies starting soon. There's women's Bible studies. Sit around tables, dig into scripture. We've got a partnership with DTS. You can audit classes here in Fort Worth. Dig deeply. Second challenge I want to give you is evaluate your obedience in light of God's leading and take your next step. Right? Evaluate what your obedience should look like in light of God's leading and take that next step. Look, as we attempt to grow in, in the name tag that's been given to us as Christians, it's not enough to just know right theology, right? We have to act on it. It's not enough to just understand, yeah, this is the correct theology, that's the incorrect, we have to act on it. And at times, learning is just more comfortable, right? I, I can consume and I never really have to get out of my comfort zone. Evaluating your obedience in light of God's leading is going to necessitate that you have a relationship with the Lord, right? Not just that you're studying, but that you're listening, that not just that you're studying God's word, but you're saying, God, would you speak? Would you speak through your word? Would you, would you put yourself in community of others who are walking in the spirit, who are also studying God's word to point out blind spots in your life or even point out encouragements of gifts that you would have never seen that you had, but they see? Some of us get paralyzed on the bench. Right? When we think about taking that, that obedient next step in our life, some of us have said, man, I have sat on the bench for a long time. I haven't gotten to game. I haven't, I haven't done those things. I've, you know, I've checked the moral checklist. I, I believe the right things. I believe the right things, but I haven't, I haven't really gotten in the game that much. And that becomes paralyzing. It becomes this muscle memory where I just think, man, I, I'm just, I'm just kind of used to doing it this way. Paul was silent for 10 years. And it's not appropriate for me to assume he was disobedient in those 10 years or he's apathetic. But we, we know that there was just this silence where we don't know what was happening. It feels like at least the story that God's telling through Acts, where is he? He's, he's kind of on the bench. And then look what happens. Look what happens. Spiritual momentum. When you feel stuck, when you feel stuck, spiritual momentum to start snowballing in your life is as easy as just the next spiritually obedient step. That's it the next spiritually obedient step. And if you don't know where to start with that, real practically, if you're like, I really, I want to, I don't know where to start, let me give you a really easy and beautiful one. Go serve in kids' ministry. Go make disciples of infant through fourth graders in any of our campuses. They would love that. If you can pass a background check, which is actually a pretty strenuous background check, we take those pretty seriously around here. But if you can pass a background check and you love Jesus and you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you don't really know a place to serve and to get in the game and you're like, I don't know, and you've kind of been sitting on the bench waiting for something to come, go. And if you're like, man, that would be exhausting. I don't want to keep up with those kids. They're running around. We have kids that don't run. They just like, you just hold them. <laughs> you just pray. Get in the game. Do, do something. Take one next obedient step. Last is this. Last is this, foster personal life change in light of God's grace. You're knowing, you're doing, but coming from a place of heart change, of life change, 
right? It's, it's one thing in my marriage to, to know what the right thing is to do in my marriage and to know what the right thing to say is and to say it or to do it, but it's an entirely different thing in my marriage when it comes from a place of, I love Danielle. I want to say those things. I want to do those things. And sometimes in marriage, I, I just find myself going through the motions. So Lord, would you stir our hearts that we wouldn't be just going through the motions, that you would stir our hearts in light of your grace, not shame, not, not religious customs, but what does Barnabas see? He saw the grace of God. What's the grace of God sound like? Let me end with this. This is what the grace of God sounds like. That is the motivation for our ability to go chase after him. Our motivation for life change that I can't muster myself. I can't manipulate it. I, can't, I, want, I know the right thing to do and I should do it and maybe I am doing it, but it feels dry. God, would you change my heart? Would you change my life? Are you motivated and moved by the grace of God? Listen to the grace of God. Titus chapter three. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's who we were. That's what we deserve. We were far from God. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. You didn't do anything. But according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let me pray. Father, would you do what only you can do? God, would you, um, would you help us to obey, to grow in your obedience to know you and who you are. And Lord, would you help us walk motivated by your grace, how kind you are, God, that you were so gracious to save us when we didn't deserve it, to call us into your family. God, we're grateful. For my friends who are in this room or watching online or at other campuses who have yet to put on the name tag of Christian, would they see the grace that you offer? And would they be forever changed? And for my brothers and sisters who are Christians and we wear the name tag, would our motivation for how we run after you in obedience be driven and deepened and deepened and deepened every day as we lean into how you so perfectly love us today. Through Christ, in his name we pray, amen.